I noticed that uh, David's talk focused largely on the First World War, and uh, I, I think in many ways the First World War for the United States as well as for Europe represents an important watershed. Um, it <clears throat> supposedly the period in which America lost its innocence, but of course it had been deflowered many times before. Uh, but this is seen somehow as the beginning of America's commitment to the world, um, a commitment, by the way, which in the First World War resulted in the death of about 160,000 uh, Americans, figures that um, the next speaker, Hunt Tooley, has written about in great detail. Um, it does not result in peace. It results in a punitive, a punitive treaty um, and uh, creates even more disorder than it existed before in East Central Europe, uh, and uh, in many ways will set the stage for another world war. Um, but one, one, of the, one of the things that, that interested me uh, is how the United States gets into the war and the long-range consequences. Um, usually you are told in books that I studied in college many, uh, many eons ago that um, uh, there was an isolationist impulse, but somehow German aggression was so overwhelming uh, that American um, resistance to war was broken. And uh, then we, uh, a famous movie was made in World War II showing the grim face of Woodrow Wilson, you know, as he brings America into war in the first week of April of 1917. Um, and this, of course, is done quite reluctantly because the, the German militarists just won't stop with their aggressions. Um, as, as I study this uh, in, in, in greater and greater depth, it seems to me that the two sides were probably roughly equal, equally to blame. Um, recent scholarship, like McMean's book, indicates that Russia probably was a bit more aggressive than the other powers. Uh, there is a very good German work, which I read by a man named Konrad Kano, called Der Weg des War in den Abgrund des Ersten Weltkrieges, The Way into the Abyss of the War. And uh, what, what I noticed is that in this book, and one that had come out, which apparently is the, um, the Pièce de Résistance, it's the most important work that has been published in a long time, synthetic work on the war, by Christopher Clark, called The Sleepwalkers. And it is one, by the way, which is being largely ignored in Germany because the Germans wish to accept full blame for a war which they were only partially responsible for. But being a masochistic nation, they, uh, <laughs> they totally reject the arguments of Walker. And Walker seems to lean toward um, uh, Kano's position that the British are much more responsible for the war than was generally believed that, in fact, Lord Grey, um, as a member of a group called the Coefficients, that from around 1900 on are plotting a war against Germany, and, and together with the Fabians, uh, who were not only socialists but also imperialists and looked upon Germany as the inevitable political and economic competitor of England. Uh, there's like more than enough blame to go around, by the way. The, uh, uh, the Germans behave with ineptitude, uh, um, the English are far from innocent. The Russians, perhaps, are the ones most responsible for getting the war going. But the, 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 the question is why uh, are Americans convinced 
that one side is to blame. I mean, there's, there's, it's quite possible that you can talk about the, the blockade, the, it was probably an illegal blockade of the British, which was causing starvation in Germany. The fact that Germany was encircled, that, that there were alliances made by its enemies, uh, which were very definitely aimed at uh, uh, destroying their power. Um, and uh, one, one could find other evidence that, you know, the, the blame was sort of equally divided. And in any case, I think the argument made by Neil Ferguson uh, in The Pity of War is that if England never entered the war, it would have been, remained the major power of Europe, financially in terms of its navy. Uh, entering the war, getting involved was disastrous. The United States, if it never entered the war, would still be the world's strongest power at the end of the war, not Germany. Not England, United States. Um, but the, the, these the, these are things that are known. These are things that could have been known during the First World War. M much of the evidence that I see in Kano and uh, other people writing on the war, Ferguson, Walker, um, the, the, this is stuff that was known already uh, during the war, right after the war. Uh, nonetheless, we, we, we get this the story that, you know, one side is to blame, the United States is, is forced into the war. Then something else very interesting happens. There is a total suppression of opposition that comes with um, a, a committee that is, that is formed by the government or commission um, under George Creel, uh, April 14th, 19, April 13th, 19, a committee on public information, which pretty much controls all sources of information in the United States. Um, there are also uh, vigilante committees going around burning down German libraries, threatening the lives of German Americans, and so forth. This is organized government terrorism. Um, and as I, as I look at the war, it seems to me that the people who perhaps play a dominant role in getting this war going, or getting the United States involved in the war, will then become um, key players or key actors uh, in defining the they become architects of the of the American foreign policy that will be pursued for the next hundred years, uh, and this the, the the people who are most involved we might describe them as the as the WASP patriciate in the United States, the patrician class in New England, the Middle Atlantic states, and the South. Um, and it was not just the Democrats who got us involved; the Republicans would have involved us in 1915. Uh, they were on, uh, Teddy Roosevelt and other Republicans were unhappy with, we did not get involved in the war much earlier after the sinking of the Lusitania, although it was obvious it was carrying British arms. And this was known all over the place. And the Germans warned they were ca carrying British arms, contrabands, yet people got on it and they went on the, and, uh, this of course was used by Wilson not to go to war, but to replace the, uh, the mild-mannered Christian pacifist William Jennings Bryan uh, with, a, uh, with an Anglophile interventionist, Robert Lansing. Um, the ambassador to England, um, uh, what's his name, Walter Hines Page, uh, told the British in 1914 that the Americans would try to get into the war as soon as they could. Um, I would note that the Democrats were less belligerent than the Republicans, Lodge, who later is saddled with the blame that the United States does not get involved in the League of Nations, which I think was a smart decision. Uh, we would have been fighting wars in East Central Europe uh, uh, on behalf of the revisionist powers created at the treaty. Um, but the, uh, uh, the, the reality is that Lodge was an interventionist, much more so than Wilson. 
Um, so was Charles Evan Hughes. So was Elihu Root, who was the founder of the Council on Foreign Relations in 1919. And so were a number of other patricians, um, most perhaps most significant or most prominently, um, Nicholas uh, Murray Butler, president of, Harvard, of uh, Columbia, who manages to kick out um, Charles Beard. Um, and the, uh, the, the, the former president at um, Harvard, uh, Charles W. Eliot, and then his successor, A. Lawrence Lowell. Um, all of them are interventionists, and they take disciplinary measures against people who, who are not on the side of England in the war. Um, now, the reason these people are on the British side is that they're Anglophiles. It is not that they believe in global democracy. Um, most of them are uh, uh, immigration restrictionist. They believe very much in the dominance of their class and of, of their ethnicity, uh, but they are, they're Anglophiles. They're not Germanophiles because from around 1890 on, there is going to be a growing competition between England and Germany. And they, they manage to take this, they manage to show that England is somehow not the same people ethnically as the Germans and that, that the, the, the freedom loving Germans all were Anglo-Saxons who went to England. Uh, and in fact, it was not in the forest of Germania, but the forest of England that, that freedom develops. And the English, the, the Germans sort of get pushed out of this narrative of freedom, I mean, the cradle of liberty. Um, and there's a new narrative created around the English in which the Germans are seen as enemies. Uh, there's also um, uh, something which is being called the Imperial School of History. And when I was many years ago at Yale, I was a member of the Charles McLean Andrews Society. Little did I know that he was a warmonger on the side of England. Um, and that much of his history was an attempt you know, to show the, the unity of the United States and England um, and it was largely tendentious history. The same thing was true about uh, George Lewis Beer at Harvard, also involved in the Imperial School, in which the, and they try to show that the, the American Revolution was a mistake, uh, that uh, you know, the United States is really part of England or something like this. Uh, and uh, we, we, are always, we should always be united to you because we are, we are the English people. This has um, come back more recently if you noticed in the stuff about the Anglosphere that the neoconservatives have been floating around, uh, although the Anglosphere has now been replaced by the Israel, Israelophasphere or something in, in, in recent years. Um, but it's, it's pretty much the same notion. Uh, once, the, once the war is over, uh, the same people who are instrumental in getting us involved, the same patricians, found the uh, Council on Foreign Relations in 1919. And this has remained a force in American liberal internationalism ever since, right? I mean, they put out important magazines in foreign relations. Um, they're very much in, in, in favor of American entanglement in the rest of the world. They believe in the kind of democratic idealism uh, that uh, my good friend Tom DiLorenzo mocked so mercilessly in his speech. Um, they, these, are, these are all positions that they've consistently taken over the years, um, there is one important difference, however, and I would note this perhaps uh, as my final observation, um, that in, um, in time these people are going to be replaced, that by the late 30s, many of these patricians who favored American involvement in World War I, and people who were not so patrician but were part of that class, such as Herbert Hoover, the Taft family, become isolationist. 
They say, now, we burnt our fingers once in World War I. We're not going to get involved a second time. Okay, so there, there is not necessarily a continuity um, among, uh, 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 between the actors in World War I or the social class involved in World War I and the people in, in world who want to get involved in World War II. We know that Alice uh, Roosevelt Longworth, you know, came from a, her, her father was a strong pro-British interventionist who wanted to go to war in 1915. She, she's an isolationist. Uh, so, so there, there is no, there is no direct continuity. There, there were organizations, you know, of Anglophiles who wanted to get involved, but you know, you typically you find people like Walter Lippmann, uh, who had also been an interventionist in World War One. Uh, but you don't find the same kinds of patricians <clears throat> invo- involved in World War Two. There, there also is an interesting uh, correlation that I find between people who are immigration restrictionist and people who want to make the world safe for democracy or fight a crusade for democracy, uh, most of the membership of the Immigration Restriction League after World War I, uh, people like, um, uh, like A. Lawrence Lowell, Lodge, were, were active interventionists in the war. They were, they were among the, mo- the strongest interventionists, and there is a kind of correlation. Uh, they were Anglophiles, you know, uh, but in order to get involved to justify their involvement in the war, they have to use this language of democracy. Now, why do they use this language of democracy? Well, if you look at who wants to get into the war in World War I, most of the people who want to get into the war are not going to be on the left. They're typically on the right. This is an observation John Lukács made a long time. It's absolutely true. The people on the left are the anarchist, um, Russian-Jewish, Marxist, this... They don't want to get involved in war. Then you get the Irish worker. You know, they're, of anything, on the side of, of Germany. Uh, but, so in order to justify the war, you have to give it a progressive character, right? And uh, you get some progressives involved. This is Murray, Murray Rothbard wrote an excellent article on the world who won as a progressive crusade. Um, so you have to get these progressive people and show it's a progressive war for democracy against autocracy, what you have to do is sort of turn it around and show that it is a proper progressive cause to get involved in the war on the side of England against Germany. And much of this will come from people who really don't give a rap about these things. But, you know, this is, if you want to be on the side of England, you have to depict the allied side as the progressive side. Now, this was typically being done on, in Europe because the, uh, if you look at, at how people line up, typically the conservatives line up on the side of Germany and Austria the more progressives in Spain, in Italy, and other places line up on the Allied side. The same thing is true in Scandinavia. So uh, uh, this is not true in the United States. <laughs> uh, we might say the, the, more, the sort of the, the ruling class is pro-British, and the other people are, are you know, pro-German or neutral. So what, what, what you have to do here is give it a progressive twist so it becomes a war for global democracy. Uh, or a, a, a war that will make the world safe for democracy. What happens is the same slogans and the same concepts will be taken over in time by other groups. Most recently, by the neoconservatives, right? Not that they are members of the Immigration Restriction League, not that they are WASP patricians, but the same, uh, the same cliches or the same slogans that were used by WASP patricians who wanted to intervene in World War I on the side of England, will be given double and triple duty later. And they sort of, they create the language 
uh, and the conceptual world of American foreign policy. Um, and they create magazines, they create institutes, uh, they, they create departments of foreign relations, which will continue this legacy of bringing democracy to the rest of the world. Now, I know that, that there are other deeper roots, sort of going back to Lincoln, going back to uh, someone to push them back to the founding of uh, New England by the Puritans, the refounding of England by the, by the Puritans. Um, but I would argue that if I'm looking for a decisive reason that things are going to turn this way, um, even if Lincoln and others are going to be invoked later, uh, it is definitely American intervention in World War I and the kinds of arguments and slogans that will be constructed to justify that intervention. Thank you.